Well, good morning, everyone. You know, this morning is the first day of, what is this called, daylight savings time? And we've lost an hour. And I think I was telling Chatelaine last night, yesterday, that at our age, we don't need to be losing hours. (laughs) Young people can afford to have an hour chopped off here or there, but... (laughs) James, when we get to a certain age, right, brother? Man, don't chop those hours off. Yeah, speak for myself. So, yeah. So I can't wait to November to get my hour back. <laughs> I'll feel better. It'll help me to feel a little younger, you know, in November. Again, thank you for so thank you so much for being here. One of the things that I hope that you're doing, <clears throat> and I'm not sure whether you are. Some of you may be. But I want to encourage you to do this. You know, ministering the Word of God, whether in a Sunday school class such as this, or whether it's in a sermon context, or whether it's in a counseling context, all a pastor has for the people of God is the Word of God by the Spirit of God. We have nothing else. We can talk about some of our own experiences and everything, but everything comes down to one issue only. It's not the amount of our education. It's not how well we speak. It's not our personalities, although all of that may contribute something to the entire issue. But the power and the effectiveness is in the anointing of the Holy Spirit as he anoints his word, as he anoints the person who delivers that word. And so I say all that to be asking you to continually be praying about this class or any class that I teach or Evan teaches, Jason or any of us, Keith may teach. Because as we move along, I have to regularly, just like you would if you were doing the class, and for those of you who have taught, you know some of this, I have to regularly get a sense from the Holy Spirit, where are we going in the next class, the next lesson? Do we go in this direction? Do we go in that direction? Do we emphasize that? Do we not emphasize that? Do we add this? Do we subtract the other? Because there's so much to talk about, and we can't talk about everything all the time. And we want to make sure that what we're sharing is specifically designed by the Holy Spirit for the benefit of those of us who are in this class. I think you understand that. Not just the teacher's desire, oh, I want to teach this and I want to say that. Because what I wind up having sometimes is when I go back and edit some of the material that I've put together, hopefully under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I wind up taking out a whole lot that I wanted to talk about. But the Holy Spirit is just to say, no, that's, that's fine, but that's not what I want to talk about. So there's always that discernment in the spirit. So be praying about this. Where do I go next lesson? Where do I go the next lesson? How many more lessons? When do we stop? What will be the next set of courses? Although I think I already know in Sunday morning sermons, what to apply, what not to apply. Next week, I'll be talking about the Palm Sunday. I'll be preaching next Sunday. And actually, all the other guys will be out of town. Keith and Gina are going to be on a little personal trip. Evan is going to go to Kyle Bagwell's wedding. I'm not sure if all of you remember Kyle Bagwell. And, and Jason won't be here. 
it's just me. Can you imagine the, now think of this. Think of the wisdom. Think of the wisdom of the leadership team in this church. They have left Sunday morning worship service in my hands. <laughs> Therefore, telling you that I know that will encourage you in great travail of prayer this week. But seriously, pray about it. I think I know where the Lord wants to go. I think it's going to be a little bit different way of doing it. Uh, but I have to make sure. I have to know. Plus, also working on the lesson for this class. Uh, and then working on something for the youth. Uh, that's what we do. God gives grace. But we have to hear from God. So never assume that these lessons, these teachings, these counselings, whatever, are done hopefully in the power of our own person. Because this is where my fear is. And it's, it is. This is a frightening thing for me. And, and <clears throat> some of you who know me better than others know I mean this very deeply. My biggest fear is that I will speak, whether one-on-one -on -one or to a corporate gathering, and it won't have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's my biggest fear. So we always have to have the anointing to receive from God and then to give to you from God, then to have you be anointed by God to receive it so that all of us together may be walking in the good of what God is doing. Amen? So you be praying about that. That's just, I don't know. Are we on tape for all this? John, are we on the tape for this? Okay, well, they get extra this morning. See what, see what tithing does for you? You get a little extra like that. Father, thank you so much. Father, it is an unspeakable gift that you have given to us in our great high priest. An unspeakable gift that you've given to us in your word. The unspeakable gift of the Holy Spirit. Father, there are no words that we can conjure up, that we can create that are available to us in any vocabulary of any language that can even begin to touch the vastness, the glory, the incredibleness, the magnificence of who you are, of what you have done as revealed to us and made real to us by your word through the Spirit. Father, this morning, as always, we need your anointing upon us. Father, for we dare not take one step in any direction whatsoever without your anointing. So, Father, we call upon you to do what you said you would do and what pleases you so that in all things you may be pleased. Because of Jesus having paid the full, final, and forever price. Amen. <clears throat> well, you remember last week we were talking about and we concluded the class with Jesus 
going to the River Jordan to be baptized. And you remember why Jesus had to be baptized. Remember John said, no, no, no. I am not supposed to baptize you. You need to baptize me because John has had a revelation. The one on whom the Spirit descends, he is the one. Remember, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So some way John knew that his cousin, his cousin Jesus, whom he probably hadn't seen for a number of years because John went to live with the Essenes at the age of about 20, and now John is 30 and a half, and Jesus is 30. There's about six months between the two of them. And so John hasn't seen Jesus for a while. And he really doesn't know a whole lot about Jesus other than he's a cousin. That's all he knows. He's just a cousin. He hasn't been seeing Jesus and talking to him and receiving great revelation, and they've been talking about the depths of the word. He doesn't know Jesus. That's cousin Jesus. You know, my first cousin, my second, you know what I mean. But when he sees him coming, the Holy Spirit gives him a revelation from heaven. This is the one. Now think. John is a Jew. He is of the Levitical family, the family of Levi, the family of the priests and the Levites, who are the ones who have been given the responsibility of tending to the worship of God in the nation of Israel. They had the highest privilege and responsibility. These are the ones. This is the family that has the responsibility of taking the nation before the very presence of God so that the nation may be maintained and may continue to be that light to the Gentiles as God has created them to be. What a privilege and what a responsibility. So John knows the Scriptures. He knows the Scriptures. These men knew the Scriptures as we don't even begin to know the Scriptures as far as content is concerned. And he sees a man coming. He probably knows it's his cousin, but he sees Jesus coming. And under normal circumstances, he would have let Jesus be baptized. Okay, you know, you're coming. You're like I am. You know, we all need to be baptized. This is good. We're working the purposes of God. Yeah. Okay, let's be baptized. But all of a sudden, heaven opens and speaks to John. This is a necessity of the revelation of the Holy Spirit in all of our lives about everything. And everything changes. All of a sudden, John sees the one who will in himself and by himself. Now, what, to what extent John sees it, I don't know, but he sees something. Who in himself and by himself will fulfill and conclude and complete all of the Levitical legislation required to come into the presence of God so that the tabernacle upon the earth may become God's tent of meeting with his people. So God and his people may be a fellowshipping communion, which was the purpose of God for the creation of Adam and Eve and then of Israel. What must that have meant to John when he said that? See, we look at the word and we forget and we pass over it. There's no telling how John felt when he says, Behold the Lamb of God. What rushed in his memory? What did his mind gather of the Old Testament and bring it into a focus, into one man? 
all of the Old Testament, thousands of years of what has been happening, gathered in and focused into one man. That's what John was seeing. And so remember, Jesus says all what? Righteousness must be fulfilled. In order to be the type of the Old Testament priest, he has to fulfill the mandates or the requirements of Leviticus. Because Leviticus is the book of the Bible that gives us the way God is to be, God is to be ministered to and worshipped by the people through the Levitical system. And so Jesus has to be washed as the priest was washed. Remember in chapter 8 of Leviticus, we saw this. Verse 6, <clears throat> and then not only to be washed, but then Jesus had to be anointed as the priest had to be anointed. Remember verse 12 of chapter 8 of Leviticus. And this was a requirement. And Jesus had to fulfill this requirement, not because he had to because of lack of, because of his, his person as the son of God, but because he was fulfilling the type that God had laid down for the priest to function as the one who would submit or offer the sacrifice for sin. So having already done that, now Jesus is ready to begin to assume his three roles. Remember the three roles. The role of what? King the role of prophet, and the role of priest. We went through this. Each role having to do with some function and a revelation of the roles of God or the persons of God within the Godhead. Each one having, accentuating a particular aspect of the role of the Father as king, the role of the Son as the priest, and the role of the Holy Spirit as the prophet. So we've talked about all that background. I want to resist going through all that again. So this morning, let's look at Jesus' role as he is the priest who was the one who finally comes to do what the Levitical system anticipated was a type of and what did temporarily for the people. But it couldn't be completed until he who was God's high priest was on the earth to fulfill all that Leviticus was typifying and pointing to or foreshadowing. And so we'll look at that. Now we're going to remember that what happened. Remember in Exodus chapter 40 verse 34, what happened? The temple is complete and the glory of God what? <clears throat> Falls upon the temple. Remember the glory of God fills the temple. Sorry, the tabernacle. And it happens in St. Chronicles too, but the tabernacle is filled with the glory of God. Now, the tabernacle was built for the man of God to go into the tabernacle to minister the things of God before the face of God. So the startling comment in verse 35 at the end of chapter 40 is what? Not even Moses <clears throat> could enter the tabernacle. So what kind of a deal do we have here? Finally, the glory of God is upon the earth. He's left the mountain, remember Mount Sinai. He's left his heavenly abode as typified in Mount Sinai. And God has condescended to dwell among his people on earth in the tabernacle. That's what that's about. Remember the fulfillment of that. John 1.14 is the fulfillment of God condescending to dwell among his people in an earthly tabernacle. Remember John 1.14. All of you I know know what John 1.14 is. If you don't, that one you got to look up. So we would expect, hey, Moses, come on in. But there's something that 
uh, what prevents. And it has to do with the earthly ministry of Jesus having to be accomplished first before the people could come into the presence of God. And what was that? The impurity of sin, the penalty and the impurity of sin had to be dealt with. Sin had to be purged and the defilement of sin had to be purified. Purgation and purification, purging and purification had to occur. And once that occurred by the administration of the high priest through the sacrificial system, then the people were able to come in. Then the way into God's presence was made possible. And so this is what we see Jesus beginning to do when we begin to look at the, uh, the uh, ministry of the Lord Jesus. You remember once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement administration is found in Leviticus 16. This is the high point. This is the pinnacle. This is the way into God's presence. Leviticus 16 stands as the mountaintop, really, of the Old Testament in a way because it shows this is the way that God accomplishes this is his great eternal purpose in creation. He wanted to accomplish it through Adam. Adam failed, and therefore he sets up or he designs or he has already been ready to have in place a system that will allow man to come back into his presence, having been expelled from the garden. And Leviticus 16 stands as the way in shown to us in the Old Testament in type and being fulfilled partially or temporarily, but always that mountaintop of Leviticus 16 pointing to another mountain, another mountain. What mountain? Mount Calvary. The mountain of Leviticus 16 always is pointing toward Mount Calvary. Mount Calvary will be the New Testament fulfillment of Leviticus 16. So you remember the once a year the high priest would enter into the most holy place, the place of God's presence, with the blood of the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. The priest would sprinkle, remember we talked about this several weeks ago, maybe months or years ago. The priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice where? On the mercy seat seven times. And then when he did that, he would return. And when he returned, he would come out of the tabernacle, and the people knew that God had accepted the sacrifice for their sin, and the priest would bless the people, and for another year, the people would live in the good of the face of God, in the face of God's blessing. Remember that, that great blessing that Aaron gives in number six. In number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Remember that. That's the blessing. Well, that is the blessing, the purpose, the goal of Leviticus 16, to bring us into the presence of God so we can live in the good of God's blessing, see him face to face, and be living in the peace of who God is in himself. So what was the result? When the priest sprinkled the blood, the result was this. The atonement may be made for the people of Israel once a year because of their sin. And when he did this, their sin were forgiven or put away for another year, year after year. And during the year, there were a number of sacrifices made daily, daily, daily for the ongoing defilement that sin 
creates in our lives as we walk in the world. Remember John 13. Jesus said, all of you have been made clean by the word that I've given you. Remember in the foot washing. So you're clean. That means you have been saved. You have been washed in the blood of the lamb. You have been born again by the water of regeneration. Remember in Titus 3, uh, 2.15. But you're going to get your feet dirty as you walk through life. And so there is the necessity of being cleansed on a regular basis. And so without going into any detail, that was the reason for the ongoing sacrifices on a daily basis in the tabernacle. So this is the role that Jesus came to fulfill. He came to fulfill the role of what the high priest had done. Remember Matthew 20, 28. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when Jesus uses that term, give his life, a ransom, to lay down his life, what is that? That's sacrificial language. That's sacrificial language. And a lamb could not give its own life. A lamb could not come up, a little lamb or a goat could not come up and say, here I am, I'm ready to be sacrificed. So when Jesus is talking about giving his own life as a sacrifice, he is talking about the twin activities, correct? He's talking about the sacrificial lamb or goat that is offered in sacrifice, and he's also talking about the priest who has to make the offering and slit the throat of the lamb so that the blood is spilled so that can be sprinkled on the mercy seat. That's what Jesus is talking about, both of those activities. He's bringing together into one person. But as we, before we get into some of that, first let's look at the I am statements that have to do with the Levitical legislation. I said last week, that I believe that each of the I am statements have something to do, a relationship in some way to the tabernacle and to the priest and to the sacrifice. Now, I know a couple of y'all have been studying this, and, and, uh, and y'all actually you may have better insight and better information about it than I do, but at least let me share with you what I feel the Holy Spirit has given to me to share. You remember the seven I am statements. Uh, now, in these claims... Jesus is making a startling and significant and very unusual and unique statement about himself, about his priesthood. In each of the I am's, he's saying something about the priesthood that no priest could ever say. What was the distinction? The Old Testament high priest was an Adamic figure. You know what I mean by Adamic Adam? Remember, the Old Testament priest served in the place that Adam failed. Adam was to be the priest. Remember Genesis 2.15, who would do what? Work and keep the garden. Protect and maintain the temple of God, the garden. Maintain it and protect it so that it continued to be a functioning place and a holy place, a place fit for God's presence and a place fit for the people of God to come together in communion. This was Adam's function as a priest. And so when Adam failed in Genesis 3, 6, when he ate of the fruit of the, uh, of the tree, God raised up other priests to function in the same way all anticipating and looking forward to the priest who would finally in himself, as I said, and by himself fulfill what Adam failed to do so that God's great intention of having a people in a setting upon the earth where he and God and the people may commune in fellowship forever, which is a fulfillment in Revelation 21 and 22. 
And so Jesus says in these I am statements something about that. He's saying something about himself that, as I said, no Old Testament priest could say. The Old Testament priest was an Adamic figure. In his office only, he fulfilled the priesthood in office only, but not in his person. Does that make sense to you? The priest before Jesus fulfilled the office of priesthood in his office only and not in his person. But when Jesus came, he fulfilled the priesthood in both his office and in his person. So when Jesus says, I am, and then he gives you a predicate, the bread, the light, etc. What he is saying is, I am the fulfillment of the Adamic priesthood, not only in my office, but also in my very person. Because you remember the word I am. You remember that, that uh, uh, subject and verb, that statement. It is a statement of the name of God that we see, especially in uh, Isaiah 44 and 45. And we see it again or before that in, uh, in Exodus chapter 3. Verse 14, what name shall I tell the people? Remember, Moses is speaking to God. What is your name? What am I going to tell them? Who are you? What is your power? What is your purpose? What are your abilities, et cetera, et cetera? He says, tell them that I am. And so in John 8, 58, which is a quintessential statement of Jesus about I am, John 8, 58, he tells the Jews, he says, before Abraham was or before Abraham was born, I am. He says, I am the very God of the Old Testament incarnate in the flesh and because I am the God of the Old Testament I alone have the credentials and the authority to serve as the priest of Israel for my people for the saving of my people that's what's contained in these I am statements it's good to say, okay, what is the light and what is the bread, whatever. But we first have to understand, undergirding all of that, what is Jesus really saying? He's using these predicates as particular issues pointing to things, but what he's really saying is, I am in my own person. I am the one who is your priest. So let's look at some of these. First one, John 6:51. I am the bread. I am the bread. Now, you remember when we talked about the tabernacle, you remember there was the outer court, and in the outer court was what? The first brazen altar, the furniture. Remember seven pieces of furniture? And then when you left the brazen altar, you'd come to what? This big bowl, this big tub, if you would, whatever, wash basin. That was called the, what was that called? The laver where the priest would wash. And then once the priest washed, he would walk to a curtain, and then he would draw back the curtain and walk through into a room which was called the holy place. And in the holy place, now we've come, begun to get into the presence of God. In the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture. As he walked into the holy place, on the left was what? The menorah. On the right was the table of showbread or the bread of the presence. And in front of him, before another curtain, stood the altar of <laughs> incense. And so the bread of the presence or the, 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 uh, the, uh, the table of showbread is on the right. 
as a priest would walk into the most holy, I'm into the holy place. So it was the duty of the priest. I'm not going to go into detail here. It was the duty of the priest to place 12 loaves of bread, two stacks of six, on this table of showbread. And it was the duty of the priest to maintain this. He had to maintain this. It's also called, and I'm going to call it more the bread of the presence. It's called the bread of the presence in many locations in Exodus. Because why? We're talking about the very presence of God as exemplified or typified or image in this bread. So what happens? In Exodus, the Lord, and Leviticus 24, 8, the word says, every Sabbath day, Aaron, the high priest, this is a function of the priest, shall arrange the bread before the Lord regularly. It is for the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And so what happens is this. The bread represents God's continual presence and provision for the 12 tribes, for the complete number of the people of God, for the complete number of those who will be and who are the people of God. It represents God's continual presence and provision for God's people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day uh, you know, of this. And from Matthew, I'm sorry. Now, remember, in saying I am the bread, what is Jesus saying here? He is saying, as the bread exemplified God's presence and provision, I am saying to you, that bread represented me. It stood for me. It, had, it was an analogy or a type of who I am. And so what does this I am statement have to do with the tabernacle? It has to do with the tabernacle because, first of all, it was a part of the furniture that places Jesus as necessary in himself to be part of the function of the tabernacle. And also it was maintained through the priestly work. So Jesus is identifying himself within the whole context of the Levitical legislation here by calling himself the bread. And saying, I am the bread, Jesus is affirming that he is a fulfillment of what the bread of presence symbolized. So what does the bread of presence symbolize? What does it have to do with his role as priest? Jesus is the priest who offers himself as the bread of life for the spiritual life of his people. Remember what John 6.32 says. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So pretty cryptically this morning, without going into much more detail in any of these, in saying I am the bread, what are people hearing? We must hear this within the context of Israel's listening to this man speak. They all knew about the bread. They all understood the significance of the bread. They understood the significance of it in the wilderness. You remember? What is it called? The manna. Remember that? The bread came down six days a week, twice as much on Friday, remember? So you would have not to have to gather on the Sabbath, remember that? And so it fed the people for 40 years. It maintained the people. It nourished the people. It was their life. Without this bread, they would have died in the wilderness. And they knew about the showbread or the bread of the presence in the temple. They knew about this or in the tabernacle. And so when Jesus stands and he says to these people, 
I am the bread. Remember the context. He had just fed the people, the 5,000 or 15,000, whatever it was. And they had come around the lake and had seen him. And he begins to talk to them about what his feeding of them meant. I fed you the same way Moses fed you in the wilderness. And in feeding you, I am showing that I am your God. I am your sustenance. I am the great priest who comes before the presence of God and mediates between God and the people. And I am the one that makes bread available to you. The bread that I give to you is my very life. He is the one who will go into the oven. Remember, Passover, what are the three festivals? Passover unleavened bread into the oven. He will be buried. And then the third one is the first fruits. Remember the three Levitical festivals in a row. Go to Leviticus 23 for that. We did that one a while back. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Well, on the right side was the table of showbread. On the left was what? The menorah. Now, what is the menorah? Remember, the menorah is a lampstand, and it was one piece of gold hammered out. It had a center shaft that was hollow, and then out of the center shaft, it had what? Three branches out of the center shaft. At the top of each branch was a cup that held oil, and the cups were decorated with almond flowers. And what was the purpose of this? The priest would go into the holy place every evening and do what? He would take off the old oil. Remember how oil, when it, or olive oil, when it burns, it kind of has a little crust on it? Trim your wicks. He would cut off, take off that hard stuff so the light would continue, put a little more oil in there, and make sure that the light was continually shining. That was the menorah, remember? So it was the only light in the holy place. Aaron is to tend the lampstand before the Lord from evening to morning continually. Continually. Isn't that interesting? Continually. Well, does that mean that the Levitical service of tending the lamp has to be done by the church today? Continually. When the Lord says continually, what does he mean? He means continually. So there's something about what happens here that has been fulfilled that means something more than just going in and putting, you know, making sure a light is shining. So what is happening here? In saying that I am the light of the world, so first of all, the light of the menorah, remember, represents the light of God's presence shining on Israel. How do we get that? Where is that? Where do you see that the light of the menorah is the light of God's presence shining on his people? Now think, just think. What in the holy place represented the people of God? The bread. The bread. Did, did, didn't I just say the 12 loaves Israel? Did I just say that? Yeah, remember? Yeah, I know. Yeah, but right? Did, didn't I just say that? The 12 loaves represent the people of God. The menorah represents what? The light of God. The light. The menorah is in the holy place. The light shines where? Onto the bread. 
it is the light of God's presence that is being shown here upon his people. The light of what? The light of his presence, of his fellowship, of his communion. So what is Jesus saying here? As the menorah was a continual evening and morning light of God's presence under the old covenant, maintained by the priest, I am that priest who comes to be the light of God's presence upon and even within God's people. The light of his presence of communion and fellowship continually. That's who I am. So you see a picture there. So when you begin to see that Jesus says, let your light so shine before man. Where is that? What verse is that? What book of the Bible is it? Matthew what? 16, remember? So let your light so shine before men. Just think for a second because we'll get into this later. I am the light of the world. Remember in the beginning, let there be light. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said let there be light has shown in our hearts with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Light, light, light. The revelation of the presence of God. The revelation of communing and being with God. So what do we see here in this menorah shining on the bread? And Jesus says, I am the light that has come to my people. Remember, a light to the Gentiles in Luke chapter 1. I am that light of God who has come to my people. And I am in my person and through my work. And we'll see as a result of the death and resurrection. I am the one now who shines upon my people and now even within my people by the Spirit. That fellowship and communing with God. Continually. What is the significance of that word continually? Well, you remember in John 14, verse 3, that's the significance of it. So that where I am, you may be also. That where I am, you may be also. Remember, don't let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go away to prepare a place for you. That where I am... Marilyn, you will be with me continually. You will be for my face continually. My light will be upon you continually. So what is the light of the new heaven and the new earth? The sun or the moon? No, the light is who? The lamb himself. So this is what he's saying when he says, I am the light of the world. Do we see something about that there? And so, again, I don't know how much the Jewish people understood, but I do believe that they understood more than we think they did. And they certainly understood the number of significant statements and the necessity and the revelation of light, light, light throughout the generations. So Jesus is saying, I am the one who brings you into the presence of God so that in the presence of God you may experience the light of his presence, the light of his glory, the light of his ministry, the light of fellowship, the light of communion with him. I am the light of the world. It speaks about what the priest does and the effect of what the priest does. 
in John 7, sorry, John 10, 7 to 10. I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, as I read that, oh, you're beginning to see the connection of Jesus' statements with his priestly role as it has to do within the Levitical system. The door. What does that door mean? Well, you remember what? The tabernacle was a rectangular building, remember? And the outer court, before you could come into the outer court, what was there? There was a barrier called the curtain or called the gate or called the entrance. It was a door, if you would. And then when you came into the court, there was another room which had another what? Curtain or barrier, another door. And so you had to go through that entrance into the holy place. And then into the most holy place or the holy of holies, there was still another curtain or door. And this one especially into the very essence of the presence of God. On this curtain especially were embroidered, how do you say that? Knitted, the great cherubim. Remember the great cherubim. Now, who were the cherubim? What was the function of the cherubim? These were the guardians. These were the guardians of God's presence, the cherubim. When you look at the word cherubim and what they do in the Old Testament, you'll see, what are they doing? They're guarding God's presence. Now, isn't it interesting? Would you think that somebody needs to guard God's presence? I mean, come on, God needs a guard. I mean, Claude, you see, there's hope for you in heaven. They're going to need a guard, brother. They're going to need someone with something to help us. But what does it mean? No, God doesn't need a guard, but he uses this. Why? What is the purpose and the symbolism of the cherubim guarding that entrance on that curtain? Why? It goes back to Adam. What was Adam to do in Genesis 2.15? Work and keep. Go to Numbers 3, 7 and 8. You'll see it explained a little more clearly. And keep means what? Guard. Guard. And so the cherubim are representative and are functioning in the way that Adam was to do. They were there to perform Adam's duty. He was the one who was supposed to have guard. We don't have cherubim at all revealed to us in the Bible until Adam fails to guard. Once Adam fails to guard, Warren, what happens? The Lord puts him out, and he puts two what at the entrance of the garden? Two cherubim. That's the purpose of the cherubim, to guard. So Jesus says, I am the door. He's the door for what? I am the one in my very person and in my work. I am the one who does two things. I protect, like Adam should have done, the vile and the unclean and the unholy and the impure. I protect God's presence from all of that. 
and I am the way open. I am the entrance of all of those who are holy, clean, washed, accepted by my blood into the presence of God's glory. Jesus says, I am the one. And so when you come in by me, you, you come in through this door, you come in and out and have fellowship with God. You see, there is now free access into the presence of God. So when he says, I am the door, he's referring to the, the door into the very presence of God, specifically and essentially mostly into the most holy place. Although any unclean, unwarranted person, any non-Levite, in other words, any non-Levite, no matter who you were, who entered into the tabernacle area, would die. You had to come in, not only in a particular way, but you had to be a part of a particular family to enter. Only the Levites could enter. That was what was being pictured there. Only believers in Jesus Christ can and do enter into the presence of God. All others, Jesus said, are thieves and robbers. And what does he say in John 10.10? 10? The thief, Satan, comes but to kill, steal, and destroy. We are the ones who now are fulfilling the Levitical mandate, the Levitical legislation. We are the Levites, if you would, of God today that they typified in that day. So Jesus says, I am that one. All others were prohibited on the penalty of death. Where do we see even two Levites that come into God's presence unworthy? Because even the Levites had to come in in a particular way. They just couldn't come in. The priest just couldn't come in and whatever. He had to go through a whole way of purifying himself of the defilement of the sin that he had been committing even that day. And you remember in chapter 10 of Leviticus 1 and 2? Two young men came in, the sons of Aaron. Who were they? Nadab and Abihu. And what happened in verse 2? They died. Remember in chapter 3 of Exodus, uh, Acts, what happened? Two people, un, um, not Acts 3, Acts 5. Two people unworthily, some kind of way, came and presented themselves before the Lord with deception. And what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They died. <clears throat> I'm going to close with this. I don't have time to finish. Let me make this statement. And I don't think we've made it on Sunday morning to the whole church, but the more I study this, the more I'm convinced of it. The old line churches, the old line churches, the old denominations, you know, the ones that been around here for, forever, did a few things very well and a few things not so well, just like we do. One of the things they did well, they understood that in order for the people of God, those of us who are saved, you just don't enter the presence of God having done whatever. And it's like, no. You first deal with the defilement of the sin during the day. Jesus said it in John 13. Then once you deal with that, whether before you get here or as you get here, and they had a, 
a, uh, what do you call it, a, uh, an, uh, a ritual. Uh, what do you call those things that they do? Uh, a sacrament or what, however it is. I don't mean sacrament in the Catholic sense, but whatever. I can't find the word. A ceremony. And they dealt with that. They had prayers. They had prayer. Cleanse us of the sin that we... And then they started the worship. The charismatic movement came in, seeing that this other system had kind of gotten dead, and it was just kind of routine. Kind of put it aside, and we're children of God. We're forgiven. We're in the beloved. God loves us, you know, whatever. And so we can kind of dance on in. Da, 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 ba, ba. No. 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 We have to remember, even in this church, we dare not come before the presence of God and clapping and, and all that up there until you ask the Lord, would you deal with any issue in my life? And I know there are issues. So that I may do this truthfully. So I may do this without anything interrupting my soul's pleasure in you and your pleasure in me. Amen? That's the way we need to start on Sunday morning in our worship service. That, we haven't instituted that yet, but we are talking, at least I am talking to Eric about it. But some kind of way, we need to remember what the Old Testament Levitical system says because what we do as charismatics typically is we throw that all out because Jesus has completed it. He has completed it and now maintains it in us in a way of fulfillment, but still its purpose and its goals are the same. So we are forgiven, but we are not all regularly washed of the impurities of our thoughts, words, and deeds. How many of us know, even right now, that we need every Sunday at least to be cleansed by the Spirit, have our feet washed before dancing before the Lord? So you're a child, you have children, you love them, and you have a very clean house, <clears throat> but you don't let the muddy feet come into your house. What do you do? Wash your feet at the front door, wash them, take off your shoes, whatever, and now you can come in and be a part of the household. Amen? We need to remember this. We need to remember this. This is not a movement toward a new way of thinking in the church, but I believe looking at this more and more convinced. And, and in my life, too, I need to remember these things and remember what God really wants and what pleases him. So see you next week. The term is the term is liturgy.